Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's episode, we welcome Dr. Britt Andriata. For those of you who don't know who she is, Dr. Britt Andriana is an internationally recognized thought leader who creates brain science-based solutions for today's challenges. She is fascinating to talk to. Uh, she's published several books, Wired to Connect, The Brain Science of Teams and a New Model for Creating Collaboration and Inclusion, Wired to Grow, uh, Harness the Power of Brain Science to Learn and Master Any Skill, and Wired to Resist, which I think is pretty fascinating, The Brain Science of Why Change Fails in a New Model for Driving Success. Um, she's incredibly interesting. On top of her many accomplishments, she was the former chief learning officer for lynda.com. And I believe some of the um, courses she's created have over 10 million views. I mean, Dr. Britt Andriata, uh, besides being brilliant, is incredibly down to earth and a lot of fun to talk to. So uh, today's episode, you'll learn a little bit about how uh, she believes we're one of our deepest needs that's wired into us as humans is to be our best selves and the hunger and talk about the hunger to learn and grow and get better and how to how to achieve greatness in our lives. Uh, we also talk about how to recognize if we're on track or off track to our personal uh, mission and our potential uh, and then help us find uh, if we're off track, how do we discover or rediscover what our purpose or potential is. Uh, and then the last thing I can think we dive into is the power of focus, which uh, sounds pretty easy and straightforward, but stick around and learn what she has to say about it. Again, uh, she's focused on brain science and there's just so much to learn from and, and learn uh, to, to hear today. So join us. It's a lot of fun. This conversation is great. And like I said, she's incredibly down to earth and easy to talk to. Thanks for being here. Dr. Andrea, thank you so much for being here today. We're really excited to get to talk to you. And uh, in case you've listened to the episode before, you probably know the first question that we're going to ask you, which we ask everybody. And that's a simple question. It's who are you and why do you love what you do? <laughs> I'm Britt Andriata. So lovely to meet you, Dustin, and excited to connect with your listeners today. Um, I love what I do because I'm a lifelong learner. I've always been a curious kid. I've always been someone who liked school. I'm always someone who reads a book and checks things out. And so I feel like what I get to do is I, I just get to learn all the time. And then particularly, I focus on how do we make ourselves our best selves? How do we help each other be our best selves? So for me, it's really positive and forward looking and I, I love it. I geek out on it all the time and then I get to share it with people and then they seem to really enjoy it too. So it's a really, it's a really wonderful kind of journey I'm on and I just feel really honored that I get to do this as a living. Yeah. At which point in your development did you realize that that was a passion of yours, that that uh, lit a fire? Was it, you know, as early as your high school, you know, middle school days or is it, College, post-college, when did that really uh, clarify for you? It probably started in my high school days. I, there was a teacher in me. Um, I worked at this marine mammal park and I was supposed to be, you know, cleaning the, you know, stalls and all the kinds of fun work that high school students get to do. But I found myself like standing and giving like nature talks to the, <laughs> to the customers. And I really enjoyed teaching people stuff. And so that eventually they're like, oh, you're good at it. You can do that. Um, but when I got to college, it continued. I found myself moving into the TA roles and the, you know, uh, presentation roles and, and helping people kind of navigate things. So I had a, a good chunk of my careers in higher ed. Actually, I used to, um, I, I was one of the first people that designed first year experience programs to help college students, particularly freshmen, really navigate more <coughs> 
succeed. And, and then that became a senior experience program. How do we help people transition to the real world? And then we focused on veteran success. And so I did all that for a while. So the golden thread has always been like, how can I educate people or give people tools that they can use to be better, whatever that be better goal is, right? Um, and then after I kind of done that in higher ed for a while, I felt like I, you know, I was there 20 years. It felt like I'd kind of been there, done that. And I was really ready to, to expand beyond that. So the, the leap to um, being chief learning officer at lynda.com was kind of a natural one and, and a really wonderful one. And then I started working with adults and professional learning and how we all be our best selves. So it's been, it's been in the thread through everything. Yeah. One thing uh, I think in one of your first, uh, your TEDx talk or one of the first publications I saw for you was you talking about your belief that every human is wired to achieve their potential. I may not be saying it right, but is, is wired to go after their potential or achieve their potential. Can you, can you explain that a little bit and why you believe that to be true? Yeah. So, you know, when you study kind of, so I always study kind of the science of things and particularly the biology of things, because where I think we get in trouble a lot is that oftentimes modern day things like our modern day world, technology, our workplaces asks us to go against our biology <laughs> and then it doesn't end well. So I like to kind of get into particularly neuroscience. I find very fascinating. And, you know, we all know Maslow's hierarchy but there's some biology to that. We're wired to survive, which is our need for food, water, shelter. And for most of us, that's our paycheck because that's how we buy food, water, shelter, right? Then our next need, but it's really tied to survival is belonging, being part of a tribe. We are a tribal species and there's whole parts of our biology that are designated to this. How do I read emotion in others? How do I collaborate? How do I have empathy? All that stuff. But our deepest need is the third one, which is wired to become our best selves. And it's our, it's our hunger to learn and grow. It's our hunger to get better. It's our hunger to achieve. And even when, you know, I've had a difficult past. I, was, I lived in an abusive household when I was a child and have done the therapy to work through the scars of that. But even when you're beaten down, there's still a part of you inside that hungers to heal, that hungers to be better, that hungers to find your place in the world. And I, I really think that that is the truest thing that connects us all. We're all on that journey. And then I think some of us have privilege and we're experienced, we experience a world where we're supported in that and other people have bigger barriers and more obstacles. But what's true is we all want to be seen and heard and we all want to grow to be our best selves. Yeah. What have you noticed in your research uh, uh, in terms of folks going after their human potential uh, when, when people feel like they're on track to achieving their potential versus they clearly are, or they feel and perceive that they are off track to reaching their highest potential. Yeah. I mean, you know, our, our, our bodies were equipped with this amazing barometer called emotions <laughs> and our emotions really are there to guide us if we, if we listen to them. So we kind of have this inner barometer, inner compass that some of us kind of silenced a long time ago. But for me, you know, when I'm on path, when I'm moving into the direction of my potential, I feel at peace. I may feel excited and eager, but there's a peace that comes with it. And when I'm off path and when I'm not moving in the direction of my potential, I feel frustrated. I feel, I can feel depressed and sad. I can feel anxious. Um, 
but I'm, you know, I'm a go-getter. So my, my challenge in life is that when I'm off path and feeling anger and depression and sadness and anxious and all of that, sometimes I just keep pushing like, damn it, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to get this to happen. And so a lot of my journey in life has been like, okay, you can push through things, but you should maybe be paying pay attention to the bigger picture here because maybe that's not the path you're supposed to be on. With that said, you know, I, I also have had dear family members struggle with depression and anxiety. And, and the other reason that can be happening is that there's truly a chemical imbalance that needs medical intervention for. Um, we do have a part of our brain, the habimula, that is there to help us make better decisions. But when it's active, it's cutting off serotonin and dopamine. And in people who have extreme depression, it's overactive. So it's cutting off your serotonin and dopamine. So you never get those feel good feelings, no matter what you're doing. So there are some biological and chemical things that can be at play. But I also think a bunch of us, you know, we get smushed as kids. Like we may have a sense of what we want to be. And then a teacher tells us we're not good at it, or we really know who we are, but our parents tell us that that's not accepted in our family or our church or our whatever. And, and so we kind of smush ourselves. And I think a large part of our adulthood is we keep living other people's dreams until we realize that's not working for us. And a big part of the midlife crisis or even the quarter life crisis now, because millennials are much more focused than, than the older generation was, we start to realize, oh, wait, I need to find my own path. And, and my path may make me happy, but it may disappoint people too. And how do I navigate that? Yeah, I think your your timing. So I have a quiet time uh, early every morning, and one of the the folks I was listening to this morning was talking about how uh, Walt Disney was fired uh, by you know one of his early jobs at a newspaper or something that said you weren't creative enough. Uh, you know, there's all <laughs> sorts of conversations about how Einstein may not have been you know encouraged to do math or Beethoven may not have been encouraged to be a composer, and so. I do think it's, it's interesting when you say, you know, you, you're, you're following what people's expectations are for you. I think so many of us fall into that trap. If, if I'm someone sitting out there right now that feels like I'm definitely not close or even on the rails of the track to get to my potential, what, what's some advice that you give to folks to help us start getting closer to, or back on that track? That's a great question. You know, so two things, some of us have kind of known and we've been quieting it. So part of it is just giving yourself permission to listen and maybe spend some quiet time and journal and get in touch with, you know, remember a time when you did feel joy or did feel passion about something. Oftentimes there's a lot of clues to what we wanted to be when we were eight years old, right? You know, that, that younger self. But if you're really feeling like, I don't know at all, I recommend getting, um, you know, there's two or three authors that kind of write on finding your life's purpose. And I think some of those books or those, a lot of them come with companion journals. I think that can be really helpful. Um, so, you know, Parker Palmer is one of those, Thomas Moore, um, uh, The Purpose Driven Life is another book that I think is great. And then there's a career book that I think is amazing. And it's, um, oh my gosh, it's Lily Maestas. I'm blanking on the title of the book, but it's a career work, workbook and it's filled with all these questions. And when you kind of work your way through the questions, you get some great clarity. Um, so I would look up Lily Maestas, M-A-E-S-T-A-S. Uh, she has a great career work, workbook out there. And I, you know, I think a tool like that 
I think certain like a meditation practice can be helpful. Just spending time feeling your feelings and thinking your thoughts can be good. Um, and then there's, there's advisors, a life coach, a couple sessions with a life coach or a career counselor. All of these are great supports to use to kind of help you find that little nugget of passion. The most important thing to do though, is when you start to feel that little ember or a spark is watch what you do. Do you start to say, oh, I could never do that. Or I'm not good enough. You know, Brene Brown talks about these two gremlins. One is who do you think you are? right? What? You think you're special? You think you're that, all that? And if you talk it out of that one, the other one is, uh, you know, never good. Oh, it's never good enough is first, never good enough. And then who do you think you are? So also what can happen is when you start to have a little spark, kind of these old ways we were taught by our family will come in and start to smush it. And we have to be kind of careful of like gently blowing on it a little bit and giving it a little bit of space. And not letting some of those old patterns. And that's why also too, if you have friends or family who kind of smush things, I would not share early on when it's really tender because the wrong word for them and kind of you're back to zero again. Mm. Yeah, I, I would just say, uh, it was funny. I, the person I was listening to this morning was a guy named Rick Warren who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, that book uh, definitely changed my life and my career trajectory when I read that over 20 years ago. Um, I just remembered Lily's book, Get Clear on Your Career. Ah, okay. Thank you, Synapses. Thank you for reading that up to me. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> I, I should have probably started here as, as we're thinking, but, and I assume most of our listeners understand what uh, we, we mean or what is talked about when we say brain-based learning. But for anybody who just doesn't fully understand it, just tell us a little bit about what is brain-based learning and how can we learn to you know, learn more about it, but also use it to be more effective leaders or teachers? Oh, great question. So brain-based learning is really going back to the science of how our brain learns. So I study neuroscientists and all neuroscience is, is the study of the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord. And then the peripheral nervous system, which is all the other nerves that animate your body. And in this case, you know, you look at what the data says around how humans learn. And it turns out we're learning machines. Everything about our body is designed to learn from our environment and and constantly help us improve. Um, But what's interesting is like a lot of traditional education actually goes against how the brain learns best. So brain-based learning is really kind of understanding how the brain naturally learns and then maximizing that, making the school environment align with that, making your teaching methods align with that. And if you're a learner, you know, advocating for yourself or setting yourself up for success so that, you know, you're actually not working against your biology when you're trying to accomplish something. So if I'm trying to create a district or a school, if I'm a principal that is really focused on best practices and brain-based learning, how do I even get started in that? Well, uh, you know, my book Wired to Grow is all about it. So go buy my book and you'll get all the information you need. Um, And there's lots of other authors out there that are writing on this topic. But, you know, one is to educate yourself. There's really useful um, resources that will kind of give you the background and then the actionable items. You know, a couple things you can know is that the human attention span is naturally wired to be maximum 20 minutes. Like we just have a hard time concentrating for more than 20 minutes without looking away and getting distracted. And that's actually on purpose. The hippocampus, which is what takes learning in, needs time to then take that chunk of learning and push it into short-term and hopefully long-term memory. 
And when we lecture at people for like an hour and a half, that can, uh, you know, that can, people tune out. They don't get all that information. Right. So um, uh, what I like to do is teach in 15 or 20 minute segments. And then I give the audience some kind of processing activity, whether that's just a free write for a minute or turn to your partner and talk about this or fill out some assessments, a little processing activity and the brain's ready to go again. So little things like that make a huge difference in retention of information. And then certainly the more we can relate learning to people's real lives and uh, you know, their own personal experience, the more relevant it's gonna be. So part of it is as a teacher being good at thinking about how do I connect to real life experiences, particularly when I always don't know the real life experiences of my audience, right? Um, so starting to think about shared experiences rather than kind of forcing a framework on someone. Well, you, I mean, again, that's a good topic for you because you've spent uh, quite a bit of time recently or, you know, who knows how long in your career now, but uh, on developing these kind of like mini online lessons for folks, right, on certain topics. And so uh, I feel like you're well-versed and one, being a professor, so you've been teaching your whole, whole life, but also two, trying to take what you're learning and put it into your many lessons. Um, is there anything that, like if I, as we're, our schools, you know, some of them are full-time in school. Some of us are hybrid. Uh, some of us are, um, you know, fully virtual. Is there any advice, uh, first off, sorry, is there any difference between uh, your advice for how our lessons should look for on-site versus virtual? Or is the brain research say, it's all basically the same, just stick to these kind of understanding of how much teaching and learn, you know, how much uh, talk time you have before you have to break folks up? Uh, great question. <clears throat> Actually, there's a big difference between in-person and online learning. So a lot of what happened this last year is not true online learning. It was an emergency pivot from an in-person experience to delivering it through a screen but it was not designed as an online virtual learning experience. They actually are designed differently from the get-go. Um, so one of the things that I, I'm worried about is people will be like, oh, we tried online learning and you know, it was okay. No, you didn't try online learning. <laughs> we did a global emergency switch up that yep. worked for a period of time, um, but that's not the same. And that's, that's no ding to teachers who worked really, really hard and districts had to pivot quickly. Like you guys, miracle workers. I'm so grateful my kid was able to keep learning, right? Um, but, you know, when you're designing an online or virtual experience from the get-go, the whole thing is designed with some different principles in place. Um, and then also when we're in person, all of our tribal biology comes online and we actually anchor that learning to other people in the room. And a big part of our, what we're experiencing is also the energy of being with other people. This is why Zoom fatigue is really a thing. Um, we, you know, I know right now that I'm not really with you because your head is an inch tall and I can see the rest of my room. So I know biologically I'm not really with you. So my biology is actually working harder to have this interpersonal connection than it would if you and I were literally sitting two feet apart from each other. So uh, there's lots of things that are different. Um, there's some things that are the same, but generally when I go online, you know, you have to, the pace is much faster than it would be in person. You need to use a lot more visual imagery and particularly imagery of people because we're missing that human connection. 
And then it also just depends on the goal of what you're trying to teach. You know, what aha moment or behavior change are you going after? That needs to be the number one thing that determines your design, regardless of which form you're putting it into. You're the first person I've talked to that's like been really bold and specific about what we've been doing as online learning or we call online learning is not actually online learning. So I appreciate you naming that for us. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, you've, you've spent some time on these online classes. So one thing I am curious about is people are interested in seeing, you know, what real online learning looks like from you. Uh, what is one of the subjects that you've seen catch fire that you put out there? Um, and why do you think it's been so impactful? It's a great question. So well, when the pandemic hit, you know, uh, so my first book was Wired to Grow. And so this is going to be a long answer to your question, because <laughs> I need to tell you kind of how I got there. So I have a PhD in education, le leadership and organizations, right? And that's, you know, what I launched into the world at and I was a professor and a dean for a long time. And then when I jumped to the chief learning officer role at lynda.com, I was learning about neuroscience in my therapy session. So I was learning about amygdala hijack from my therapist because as an abused, you know, survivor, I was having that happen to me. Right. And then I was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole world in positive psychology and neuroscience that I want to learn about. And so that became just my personal passion was to learn a little bit more so I could be a better learning designer. And that became the first book, Wired to Grow. And I thought one and done, that's cool. Awesome. And then, and then we were acquired, LinkedIn bought lynda.com. And I was certified in all the change models at the time. And I was in the middle of that and realized that none of them worked. <laughs> but none of them actually helped me or my colleagues through this massive, exciting, and you know, chaotic change. And so I was like, huh, I wonder what the brain science says about change. So that became book number two, titled Wired to Resist, because newsflash, <laughs> we're wired to resist change. It's part of our biology. Um, so that's in the mix. And then, uh, then I was like, I guess I'm doing this. So then it was natural to go look at teams because that's another big thing about how we work together as people and, and in the workplace. So uh, Wired to Connect was book number three. And then in the middle of the pandemic, I was recording the audio version of Wired to Resist uh, right at the beginning of it. And as I was doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, all of this is so relevant to what we're living through right now. And I had already built um, some online courses related to that book. And so one of the things we did is we made it free to the world and just said, hey, we're in this. If this is useful to you, take it. And we ended up having over 1,200 people from literally around the world, like every continent except for, is it Arctica or Antarctica? I can't remember which one's not a continent. Um, every continent, you know, was in these classes and, and sharing what they were going through. And so online education at its best allows people from all kinds of places to come through and have a shared learning journey, but they get to customize that learning journey in terms of its pace and how they want to apply it to their lives. And so each learner was really making it unique to themselves and really getting a lot out of it. But what was really cool was this kind of shared global experience we were having which we, I mean, we all know this is unprecedented, but what's really fascinating to me is never before in the history of humankind have we been so connected and living through the same disaster at the exact same time. And so there's a, a, there's a global connection and empathy now that we've never had before. And, 
And it's also going to shape us in a way globally that no other thing has ever shaped us. So a sociologist must be going crazy right now because the next, you know, the next hundred years of research are going to be just so fascinating. Yeah, I think, I mean, that connectivity is really interesting. You know, right now, you know, we're still, educators are still in a, a high pace of change. Change is all around us. And so you talked about your second book, Wired to Resist. What What is that in our brain that makes us desiring? Why do we desire to resist? And what are a couple of steps that you've advised organizations to really take to help embrace the change that they know that they have to make? All right. So we don't desire to resist. It just is what <laughs> happens. Okay, so let me tell you why it happens. Um, two things. So there's this change curve. You know, it's the research of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who studied death and dying of all things, and you know, she found these stages of grief. And it was being taught in a in a medical setting. And then the doctors or nurses are like, "Well, wait a minute. We just went through those changes. We just went through all those same feelings about a change here at the hospital." And so that was the aha moment. And then a bunch of researchers started studying it and found that it applied to change in general, not just death and dying. And the reason we kind of we have these negative emotions at first is because biologically we are wired to see change as potential danger. It kind of goes back to our tribal days. It's like if you were walking down the path and the grass looked different, it could be a lion. So we're wired to see any kind of change in our environment. In fact, that's what the amygdala scans for. As we're sitting here, you and I you know, are probably feeling pretty relaxed and safe, but our amygdala is attached to all of our major sensory nerves and it's just kind of scanning our environment. And if all of a sudden we smelled fire smoke or heard a loud explosion, we'd go on alert. And so change is the precursor to danger. So our body sees it that way. So when change is announced, uh, your first thing is gonna be like, how could this go wrong? What if I don't like it? What if I don't like the new team I'm part of? What if I don't like the new job I've been given? We, we become negative Nellies. Biologically, we're planning for worst case scenario because that's in the best interest of our survival. And then over time, as we get more, more information and we get used to it, we kind of work through those emotions and then we get over the hump and then we start going, okay, this is happening. I'm going to lean into it. What could be good about it? What could I, you know, gain from this experience? Now that I've got more information, it's not so scary. All those things. So it's a biological thing. When I'm teaching executives and leaders, I'm like, no matter how awesome you are <laughs> and how great you design change, that's not this change curve is not going away. The best <laughs> you can do is shorten the duration and lessen the drama but you can't make it go away because it's biological and people are not being difficult. They're being human when they go through this. So then a big part of it is like, make sure you're communicating consistently, make sure you're talking about what could be gained, make sure you're realistic, realistically addressing people's fears and concerns. And then you also have patience to let them just be grumbly for a while because that's just part of it. And then the second big thing that's going on is habits. So there's a whole nother part of our biology. It's the basal ganglia, how we form a habit. And when we do a behavior over and over again, you know, it's like when you think about driving a car, it took a lot of concentration to do it at first. Now you don't even, you can, you can drive without even thinking about the act of driving. That's right. the basal ganglia. And when we introduce change, oftentimes we're asking people to leave these well-grooved, comfortable habits and not only leave something that's easy and comfortable, but we're asking them to do something new, awkward and uncomfortable and hard. And 
and it takes 40 to 50 repetitions for a habit to get formed. But neurologically, that's what it takes. And so there's just a period of time when we resist it, we're uncomfortable with it. Um, but again, we can help people by teaching them and helping them get those repetitions so that they can move to the new normal. And typically what happens in organizations, change is announced, no, nobody's attending to the drama or giving people what they need. They're not giving them the training to get to the new normal. No wonder it's a mess. And no wonder change fails quite quite a lot, actually. Yeah, I think when you said uh, you present to leaders you work with, you present the, the change curve. I think about my own ego and I wonder how many other folks have you. So they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do all the stuff you say, but I'm going to be the one who's going to break the curve and let's go. How many times has that happened to you? Because I have to feel like, again, with the most well-intentioned, it's not like they're they're being arrogant. They're just like, I'm going to fix it. I love people. I'm going to listen. Like, have people pushed back on you on that in terms of the timing? A little bit. You know, it's funny. Uh, I worked in this one organization where um, they did a lot of research. They provided meals on campus, you know, to their workers. And they realized everyone was leaving on Fridays to go have lunch off campus. So they were spending all this money on food. Nobody was eating it. So they announced, we're not going to offer food on Fridays anymore. And everyone up in arms, just so upset. <laughs> and they didn't do the best job communicating it. You know, so everyone was, here's the other interesting thing about humans. In the absence of a narrative, we will create our own. And we will always make it worst case scenario because that's in the best interest of our survival. Mm. So they didn't do a great job telling the story. So the story the employees made was the company's in trouble, they're cutting back on money and we're all in danger of getting laid off now. So all of this now real survival stuff was up for people. Um, but one of the VPs was like, how long is this grumbling gonna go on? And I said, 40 Fridays, it's gonna be 40 Fridays because it's 40 to 50 repetitions before behavior gets automatic. So you can kind of predict if you're, if you're making a change on people, that something that they do multiple times a day, like you change something on the phone, probably in two or three days, you're used to it. If right. it's something you do once a week, something you do once a month, you know, sometimes you can't get enough repetitions to get over it because it's spread out too much. That's fascinating. I think uh, it's also, it's fascinating and comforting, I guess, in a weird way of, uh, being wired in some way to go to that worst case scenario thought. And so I guess what makes me think is one, what's your advice for how do I break my own cycle of like going to worst case scenario? And then I have a team of folks who work with me that I want to help them through that. Are there any things managers or leaders can do to help one themselves, but also to others? So they don't like live in this constant fear of the worst case scenario. Yeah, I think it's two things. I think when you communicate change, it's being clear around, here's the pain point we're solving. We're trying to move away from this difficulty. And if we make this change, this is what we'll gain. So kind of making it clear, what, why are you doing it? And what do you hope to get to? And then continually phrase, but this is what we're going to gain. This is what we're going to get to. This is what we can achieve. And that's the leaders making that decision for the organization on a personal level, you know, part of it is people just kind of have to go through it. So having a little patience for it, but certainly, you know, managers and leaders can be asking questions like, okay, what are your worries? What, you know, oftentimes when we voice something and we either journal it or we speak it, it, it changes. We can now let it go or we can see it in a new way. So actually encouraging people to talk about what's, what they're worried about is helpful. It doesn't mean you have to solve it just because you gave it some space to get aired. Um, but 
humans work through their emotions by talking them through or writing them out. And then they are able to move forward and asking people, well, can you identify some things that you could gain? How could you make this a positive experience for yourself? I have some friends right now that are going through their evaluations. Um, so performance reviews with folks. And I know that you've talked a little bit about this before, and I'm curious, what, what's advice to have the most productive evaluation, right? Where you're gonna have to give tough feedback, given, given what I'm learning from you, it seems like, you know, who knows what, what the mindset of someone coming into the, the review is going to be like, they could be, you know, ready to rock and roll, or they could be going to your point, the worst case scenario. So before I've, or that manager has said anything, they already think it's the worst. What kind of advice could you give us to uh, precondition the meeting, but also condition the meeting as we're in it so that if, even if it's really tough feedback, it's heard in a way that doesn't break anybody. Well, that's, that, you know, that's a tall order you're asking for. <laughs> um, so here's something funny. When neuroscientists want to study the habinula, that, that structure that cuts off serotonin and dopamine, the most consistent way they can get it to show up on brain scans and stuff is to put people through performance reviews because performance reviews are such a negative experience that they consistently produce the results so they can study the habinula. So just understand that biologically performance reviews are very threatening experiences because paycheck is how I buy food, water, shelter. And this performance review could be threatening to my ability to get a raise, keep my job or have a future for promotion, right? So people are going to go into them a little hesitant. Um, and then if you're not good at doing them, or, you know, all of us have been scarred by a couple bad ones in the past. Now that's in the mix. And then there's people's personal history. Like when I was a younger professional, I was the worst person to give a performance review to because Anytime I got some negative feedback, all my abuse stuff came into the, into the mix. And so my whole body's firing off, like I'm about to get hit. And of course I wasn't about to get hit, but my body didn't know that. And so I'm like <laughs> freaking out and I got uber defensive and was trying to make the feedback wrong because if I've got, if, if there's something wrong with me, then I'm going to be in trouble. Right. So as a manager, you can't predict everyone's personal history or their wounds or all of this. So some things I recommend is I think we always do a good job when we ask people to first review themselves and identify their strengths and what they accomplished and areas for growth or improvement. If they've already done that reflection on themselves and then you use that as the base for your reflection on their performance, that's helpful. Um, the other thing is I think starting off with the compliments called the C sandwich compliment and then the constructive critique in the middle and then another compliment is helpful. Um, particularly if when you're giving them the feedback about what needs to be improved, you talk about how you can support them in doing it. Like, do you need some training or can we set up a mentoring or how do we make, how do we make this the focus? So you really are not distracted by other things. If they feel like you're there believing that they can get better, and supporting them in getting better, it really helps as opposed to feeling judged. Um, I think all of those things make a difference, you know, and then part of it is if you can share your own story of like, hey, I've had, you know, I've had to work on some things too in my career. I also think the word yet is a great thing to add. It's a hallmark of a growth mindset. But instead of saying you're not doing this, you're not capable of that. If you just say, 
hey, you're struggling with this. You're not doing it yet, but let's get you there. It implies potential and that you believe that they can. And I think all of it is like that space that you hold. If you believe this person is capable and has potential, that will come through. And if you're there being harsh and judgmental, that'll come through too. Yeah, that's 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 really helpful. I, I do think, uh, I, I don't know how frequently that practice is out there, but starting with allowing the individual to review their own performance, at least gives you some insight to what, like where their head's at coming in and then having some strategies to kind of cushion the feedback. Cause I mean, it's hopefully it's sincere of like, I do see great potential in you. Here it is. Here are the concerns where you're not yet. Uh, I've not thought of the power of yet before. So I really appreciate it. Um, I it's clear say one more thing yep. about that, which is if after you read this person's evaluation, it is really disconnected from how you see them. Like, Whoa, <laughs> I don't see them that way at all. Look, look first to like, what's the source of the disconnect? Because oftentimes managers don't always see what people are accomplishing or don't realize that, gosh, I think I've been giving them, you know, hints all along that they're struggling, but they think they're a rock star. Maybe I wasn't as clear in my communications as I should have been, or maybe I never mentioned that this has been a problem and I've waited months to now tell them on the performance review. So it's the intersection of the manager and the employee that creates the performance review experience. And if, if how they see themselves is vastly different than how you see them, both if, if they are uber negative and you see them as stronger, that's also a hint that maybe they're not getting enough positive feedback from you throughout the year. So they know exactly where they are. Yep. That's great. That's really helpful. I think, you know, if one thing anybody's learned listening to you today is uh, your desire to, to geek out on the brain science behind things, but also to have very practical next steps. You've got a number of ways that people can learn about uh, your ideas as well as your suggestions for their own change. Can you just name a couple of places that they can go to learn more about you? Oh, yeah. Well, my website is my name. So BrittAndriata.com. You'll find everything I'm up to, my books, my podcasts, uh, the courses that I offer. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I love it when people connect with me there. Those are two great ways to kind of see what I'm up to. Yeah, well, I I think you'll get a quick friend from me after this call, and you may wish that you didn't open up that, that channel. Um, before you leave, we ask every guest, you know, it doesn't have to be anything that you've written about per se, but we want your best advice for uh, how people can create change in their own lives, right? So just maybe advice that in a book you've read recently or something that's been on your mind a lot or something you've had to coach people through recently. Um, but we know change is messy. It's Full of false starts and uh, stop, start, stop, start. And uh, it's tough. And so what advice do you have you want to leave us with today? It's two pieces of advice. One is we really can't accomplish a lot when we focus on too many things at once. So if you're focusing on a change in your life, I would max it out to, to three at the most. If you can have it be one or two, now you can string them together. But if you're trying to change seven things at one time, we just are not biologically, we're not good at that. Um, if you want more information on that, the book Essentialism is really awesome. Like when we really focus and put our energy towards something, it really can give us forward progress. And when we try to do too many things at once, we never feel like we're making a lot of progress. And then we don't get those serotonin and dopamine goodies of accomplishing. And then we kind of lose our momentum. So focus in on one or two things. 
And then really think about the habit. You know, what's the cue? What's the behavior routine? And then how do I create a reward? And think about 40 to 50. You know, I, I worked with uh, an executive who really was trying to change his behavior and decided to put a jar of M&Ms on his desk. He put 50 M&Ms in there and he gave himself one every time he did the new behavior. Um, so I don't know what the reward is for you, but the brain, the brain is pretty simple. It actually is really happy with a gold star or a ding or an M&M. You don't have to reward yourself forever, but if you're intentional about it for the first 40 to 50 times, it'll make it easier. That's great. No, I think it's funny you say that the brain's really simple about terms of the rewards. I remember being at Mays, seeing my students who were seniors in high school, uh, look at a sticker chart and start celebrating that like, yeah, I'm at, I was teaching trigonometry. So it wasn't a very sexy, exciting subject for most <laughs> folks. Uh, and yet you'd have kids pop in there and be like, look, I mastered this. I got this star. I'm thinking, how on earth is this actually, I mean, it was sincere. I was celebrating with them, but how is a, a sticker working? That's, that's beyond me. And this is what we miss in most of our lives is that we ask people to do a lot and we don't recognize progress. And so that sticker, they could visually see where they were. They could get that serotonin and dopamine for a sense of accomplishment. And when that's happening, then you get more energy and motivation because you can see it's working. Yep. You did all the right things. We all need sticker charts in our life. And uh, I think we need more of them. <laughs> yeah, that, that's making me rethink about my job right now with my team and how, what I need to improve on. So uh, Britt, this was awesome. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you so much for bringing your head and heart to this conversation. We hope we can have you back on again soon because I think we just scratched the surface of the number of topics that we can address together. I'd love to come back. And Dustin, so lovely to connect with you and your listeners. And I just hope you have a great week. Yeah, appreciate you. Thanks so much. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping huge potential.